Welcome to the Idaho Debates, a Q&A for Congressional District 2. The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hello and welcome to the Idaho Debates. I'm Marcia Franklin. Today we hear from the candidates running to represent Idaho in the second congressional district. That district takes in a large part of Boise and then extends across the central and southern parts of Idaho all the way to the Wyoming and Montana borders. The Republican candidate for the U.S. House position is Mike Simpson. Mr. Simpson is the incumbent and is in his 11th term of office, having first been elected to the position in 1998. Raised in Blackfoot, Idaho, Representative Simpson practiced dentistry there for more than 20 years. In 1984, he was elected to the Idaho House of Representatives, where he served for 14 years, including as Speaker of the House. His Democratic challenger is Aaron Swisher. Mr. Swisher grew up in West Virginia and came to Idaho in 1993 to go to Boise State University. He received degrees in economics and finance from that institution and then worked for Micron Electronics. Mr. Swisher currently works for OPSEC Security, where he specializes in anti-fraud security for businesses. This is his second run for the 2nd Congressional District, having challenged Representative Simpson in 2018 as well. Because of COVID-19 and the need for social distancing, we did not tape a traditional debate. Instead, I moderated a question and answer session with each candidate separately. Following the rules drawn up by the debate committee, I asked each person the same question and each had a minute and a half to respond. If I had a follow-up question, the candidate had 60 seconds to answer. If candidates went slightly over their time, I let them finish their thought. Now, since they were interviewed separately, the candidates did not hear each other's responses and so did not have the opportunity for a direct rebuttal. I started by asking them their opinion of the President of the United States. I'm curious, first of all, to hear your opinion of the President of the United States and if it has changed over time, why has that been? And if you don't care for him, what are some of the policies that, of his that you do agree with? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I think like a lot of Idahoans and a lot of Americans, we have some concerns with his behavior. Uh, don't like his tweets and some of that uh, type of behavior. I look beyond that and look at the policies that, he, that he's enacted, and I agree with the policies. Uh, I think he's had the country moving in the right direction. Before the coronavirus hit, uh, we had the lowest unemployment that we've had since the Great, uh, since the great Depression. Uh, the lowest minority unemployment. Uh, we've had the economy growing at about a three and a half, uh, or about a 2.8 percent rate. We get it up to three and a half percent rate, and the tax cuts uh, pay for themselves. So we had everything moving in the right direction. I agree with his policies of reducing the regulations, uh, reducing the corporate tax rate, bringing companies back into the United States, and and uh, and creating jobs in the United States. So. Uh, I agree with those things, but sometimes it's hard for some people to get past the tweets and the way he uh, the way he behaves on uh, on television and stuff. But uh, I certainly support his policies. It's no secret that in 2016 you felt that the president at that time was unfit to serve and that you were not going to endorse him. Um, you even told Politico that you were starting to wonder whether the family, his family, knows what the truth is. So there's been quite a change here. Um, 
And I remember in the last debate that we had, you made an impassioned plea for civility. You said that civility isn't something that just happens. It's a choice you make. How does, how do those views, the ones that you used to have and this um, desire for civility comport with some of the things that we have seen him say and do? Well, I think that could be used across the, across the uh, broad spectrum of people. Civility is something that you do individually. It's how you behave. I can't control how somebody else behaves. All I can do is, how, is control how I respond to it. And even not just politicians, but the, the public in general uh, needs to realize that they're responsible for civility. And if you've seen over the last, uh, and it's gotten worse, but the last 10 years, over the last four or five years, it's even gotten worse. If you've seen some of the, the emails and stuff, things that people send us, the texts and, and so forth, that you would never say that to a person if you sat down and had to look them face to face. And that's contributing to the incivility in this country. And so we have to take responsibility for it ourselves. Uh, and that means every individual has to take responsibility for the incivility that, that occurs. Do I wish that the president was more civil? Sure. Do I wish that Joe Biden was more civil? You bet. Do I wish that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were more, uh, more civil? You bet. Uh, like I say, I can only control my own behavior. Just one more question on this subject. Um, of course, the President of the United States did test positive for COVID-19, was treated. Uh, in addition to these uh, tweets that we're talking about, his behavior itself has seemed quite erratic to many people. And of course, he's been diagnosed with a very serious illness. Do you have full faith and confidence that the current President of the United States can carry out his duties now and for the next four years? Yes. Absolutely, I have faith in, in his ability to do that. Uh, he's got mild symptoms. Uh, in fact, I think he's symptomless uh, right now. Uh, he's got the best medical care in the world, uh, and I think he's going to be fine, so I'm not worried about that. I want to start by asking you about the President of the United States. What's your opinion of the President? Has it changed over time? And if you don't have a favorable view of him, are there some of his policies that you, policies that you support? Certainly. You know, when the president came into office, as with any president that comes into office, you want that person to do well, because when they do well, typically the country does well. Unfortunately, I think we have a president that cares more about himself and his brand, so to speak, than he does about the citizens of our country. And so I feel that he doesn't show much empathy. I think in some cases he's completely incompetent and doesn't seem to want to make the changes uh, that would make him more competent, make him more knowledgeable. There were areas where I agreed with the president. Uh, you know, he felt that our trade agreements were very unfair to American workers. And I agree, uh, we need to work out better trade deals. Unfortunately, his approach, even in that area, wasn't really what I would have hoped for or expected. Um, he seemed to have started more trade wars than um, work, working with other countries to come up with better trade agreements for the United States and for United States workers. So, you know, I, I try not to look at the president as a person from a certain party, but as somebody who could be worked with on certain issues. Um, you know, but that person also has to come to the table, become educated, and show that they are willing to work with the other side as well.
On COVID, um, the number of people who are testing positive for COVID-19 is rising again. And there have been, of course, more than 200,000 deaths attributed to this virus. Do you think the federal government has responded well to the pandemic? And if not, what do you think could have been done differently? I don't think that the federal government has responded well. And let me be clear about this. I would never expect our federal government to handle something like this perfectly. The last time we went through something of this magnitude was 100 years ago. And so I, I think it would just be foolish to think that our government is going to handle it in a perfect manner. But early on, we didn't really know what we were dealing with with this pandemic. And so we should have taken it as seriously as we could have um, and treated it with the utmost respect. We didn't do that. The president called it a hoax. The president downplayed it. By his own admission, he downplayed it. Now, when you kind of know what needs to be done to get the virus under control, you have a large segment of the population who doesn't want to do that because they don't think it's a serious problem because the president downplayed it as, as not being a serious problem. And so, once again, I would never expect us to do everything perfectly, but from the get-go here, we just didn't treat this as seriously as we needed to. It seemed like there were, are also some supply chain issues, you know, looking at masks, for instance. What's your sense of how those could have been or can be rectified? Yeah, I, I think the president could have invoked the Defense Authorization Act that, you know, um, basically enlists companies uh, that maybe are making other things to make the things that the country needs to get us through a period like this. Uh, the president didn't do that, and I think that was a mistake. Um, and, and, you know, originally we should have kind of quarantined everybody for three weeks a month, done testing, done contact tracing, the types of things that would let us know who had the virus and who didn't so that we could keep those with the virus quarantined uh, and then the rest of the economy could get back on its feet and keep, people could get back to semi-regular activities. Now, there were some testing problems and like you mentioned, some, some issues with our supplies. Uh, but I think we could have overcome that um, had the president taken this situation seriously. More than 100 company, countries, excuse me, have some sort of mask mandate, you know, uh, when you're in public. Do you think that that's something that the United States uh, should do? I think it is. You know, we're not asking people to sit at home with their masks on. If you're out in public, if you're in a public building, wear your mask. If you're outside and you're in a large group of people where you can't properly socially distance, wear your mask. You know, my wife and I don't go out a whole lot because she's, you know, trying to overcome breast cancer. Um, so we're not the typical couple. But, you know, in a month's time, I probably only wear my mask for two or three hours. You know, dropping kids off at daycare, going to the grocery store, things like that. It's really not an onerous request um, of people, but you know, people have kind of lost their mind on this issue and they're just unwilling to do um, anything for the betterment of, a, of society, unfortunately. But yes, I, I do think we should have some sort of guidance from the government um, and maybe even a mandate on, on where and when to wear a mask. Yeah, I was gonna say with a mandate, uh, how would you enforce that? And of course there are people who have to wear them all day long at their, at their work too, not just a couple hours a day. 
that that's true. That is true. So would you, if there were a mandate, how would you enforce such a mandate? That's a good question. You know, we seem to have a disrespect in this country for authority um, on both sides of the aisle um, when people don't want to kind of abide by things that, that would make society better for all of us. Um, and to be honest, I, I'm not sure. Do you have police enforce that? Do you arrest people? Do you fine people? Um, you would hope that people would just have a greater sense of personal responsibility and respect for their fellow human beings um, and abide by a mandate. But unfortunately, we are not in that kind of a situation today. On the subject of COVID, the numbers of people testing positive for COVID-19 are rising again. And there have, of course, been more than 200,000 deaths in this country attributed to that virus. Do you think the federal government has responded well to the pandemic? And if not, what could have been done differently? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, President Trump gets blamed for the 212,000 deaths that have occurred so far, uh, but yet no one has been able to tell me what they would have done differently at the outbreak of this COVID uh, epidemic. Uh, you know, he banned uh, travel into the United States from Wuhan uh, and from China as quickly as possible. And at the time, if you remember, he was called racist and xenophobic and everything else by his opponents. Uh, but as uh, Dr. Fauci has said, that was the smartest thing to do, and it probably saved thousands and thousands of lives by banning that travel. Uh, could he have been more uh, forthcoming with the American people of the dangers of this, uh, of this epidemic? Yeah, he could have been, but I think his argument is, is that he didn't want to scare the heck out of people. And, you know, if you listen to just the doctors on this, on this uh, COVID thing, they would have, their, their job is to protect our health. They would have us all in a bubble. I mean, that would be the best thing for all of us in terms of, of uh, protecting us from COVID. But the president has to deal with much more than that. He has to deal with the economy. He has to deal with the health of the American people and balance those two. So, you know, there's going to be plenty of time to look back at this and say, should we done things differently? But everyone that needed a ventilator got one. Uh, we had plenty of masks and all of those things that, uh, that, uh, the Obama administration left us short on when uh, they dealt with the H1N1 uh, virus. There might be some people who disagree with you that there are enough masks to go around. I think that still might be a problem. I'm curious to know, uh, Congressman, when a vaccine becomes available, will you take it? Absolutely. If it's gone through the CDC and, uh, and uh, the FDA, absolutely, I'd take it. Would you encourage your uh, constituents to do so as well? Yes, I would. Let's talk about uh, jobs. Uh, even with Congress and the president approving more than $2 trillion in emergency aid to deal with the economic effects of COVID-19, more than 10 million jobs have still been lost since February. 2.4 million people are on basically long-term unemployed now, and almost 5 million more are approaching that mark. Now, Republicans and Democrats have been at loggerheads to approve another stimulus uh, act. Looks like that might be resolving in favor of a more piecemeal uh, approach, various bills instead of one. Is that something that you support, this piecemeal approach? Yes, it is. Uh, the Republicans and Democrats have been trying to come to an agreement on, on uh, the fourth package. Uh, you know, I guess the biggest disappointment I have in Congress, uh, when COVID first broke out, I was proud of Congress and the way they worked in a bipartisan fashion. We passed three different 
relief bills, uh, and almost unanimously. I think there were three people in the in the House that voted against the CARES Act. And then something happened that it all just became partisan. Uh, Speaker Pelosi decided to pass her Heroes Act, and she never consulted one Republican on it. The day I saw the bill was the day before we voted on it when it was posted. That's not how you get bipartisan support. And for some reason, the bipartisanship that existed when this first broke out just went out the window. Uh, and so we haven't been able to come up with a package uh, yet that Republicans and Democrats agree on. Right now, uh, the negotiations that Nancy, uh, Speaker Pelosi, is at $2.4 trillion and uh, the White House and, and Republicans are at about $1.6 trillion. If it was just the number, we could come up, we could come to a compromise. Uh, but there are some poison pills that have been put in there, uh, such as the federal government taking over the election process, all of the state elections and stuff. And I don't think that's proper. We have, we don't have a national election. We have 50 state elections and six territorial elections. Uh, and I don't want the federal government taking over that and making things like uh, like uh, ballot harvesting legal all across the country. Let's talk about um, jobs and the stimulus. Um, even with Congress and the president approving more than $2 trillion in emergency aid to deal with the effects of COVID-19, more than 10 million jobs have still been lost since February. 2.4 million people are termed long-term unemployed and almost 5 million more are approaching that mark. So Republicans and Democrats have been at loggerheads over a new stimulus bill, and it looks like there might be a little bit of break in that logjam for more of a piecemeal approach, uh, individual bills. What's your thought on that? I think we unfortunately do need some sort of second stimulus. I think if we handle, had handled the virus properly, uh, handled this pandemic properly, we maybe wouldn't need a second stimulus, but we didn't do that. Um, and we're at a point where, as an economist, I can tell you, if we don't get some sort of stimulus here soon, this economy will fall off a cliff in, in the next couple of months. Uh, I would rather see an entire package, but I would support piecemeal approach if that's the only thing that can get done. What do you absolutely want to see in there? Yeah, I would like to see something that was more targeted than the $2 trillion bill that was done earlier in the year. I think you definitely have to have an extension of unemployment benefits for people. I am in favor of some sort of enhancement of those unemployment benefits. You know, during the first bill, they had added $600. Uh, I would have liked to seen something that was more tied to the income that you had uh, before you were laid off or let go. Uh, so that you wouldn't have the problem that Republicans are complaining about. Uh, but I think that's the key, is making sure that folks who have been let go through really no fault of their own can make it through until we can get the economy back and going again. Now, speaking of that, um, even before the pandemic, the Congressional Budget Office was projecting that the United States would spend $1.1 trillion over what it took in from taxes. Now, with the 2.4 trillion the federal government has already spent on the economic aid. The CBO expects the deficit to reach 3.3 trillion dollars this year, which is more than three times the deficit in 2019, and could push the debt to more than 100 percent of GDP for the first time since 1946 and World War II. What is your sense of how we can help the people who need help, but also eventually dig ourselves out of that huge hole that's that's happening? Yeah. Ideally, we would have a balanced budget um, as a general rule. Uh, you know, 
Republicans like to tell us how good the economy was before this pandemic hit. Well, if you're running a trillion dollar deficit and essentially boosting economic activity with an extra trillion dollars from the government every year, that's really not a good economy. Um, so what I would have liked to have seen was a stronger economy, one where we had a balanced bu budget before this pandemic started. Had we done that, had we kept the balanced budgets that we had at the end of the late 90s, um, you know, adding $2 trillion right now wouldn't seem like a big deal. At, we could add $2 trillion that we've already added, add another $2 trillion now, and it, and it still wouldn't seem like that big a deal. But we are constantly running budget deficits, um, and so you know, adding this on top of it at all seems like a huge undertaking. I guess my question was, where do we go from here? I mean, uh, we're in the situation well, now, so how do we continue to help people you know, and figure out how to get out of these deficits and debt? Certainly. I, number one, you've got to get the pandemic under control. That's, that's the first thing. Once that happens, you've got to reestablish an economy and doing it in a way that is more fair and equitable uh, to working class people. We have never really had that. You know, the lowest paid worker in our society should be able to go out, work 40 hours a week, and at least meet their basic needs, if not also have some discretionary spending to help drive the economy so that the economy is not reliant on the federal, federal government. We've never really had that. So the getting the pandemic under control is number one. Uh, getting a, a fair and equitable economy is number two. And then we've got to reform taxes and set up a system where we're not having the federal government spend so much money, uh, but taking in enough revenue to balance our budget and start to get the, the national debt under control. So would you bring more in in taxes? Would you um, raise taxes on certain uh, people? I, I would. I, I would. I would raise taxes on income over a million dollars a year. I would use some of that money to help simplify and reduce taxes on folks making less than half a million dollars a year. I would institute some sort of BTU or carbon tax so that we're starting to um, make our economy more sustainable in terms of the environment and the climate. Uh, and then I would use that additional revenue to help balance the federal budget. Even before the pandemic, uh, the Congressional Budget Office was projecting that the U.S. would spend $1.1 trillion over what it took in in taxes. Now, with the $2.4 trillion that the federal government has spent already on economic aid, the CBO expects that deficit to reach $3.3 trillion this year. Um, yep. It may push the debt to more than 100% of GDP in 2021, and that hasn't happened since 1946. So. Congressman, how can we dig ourselves out of this hole, but still help the people who need the help? Well, you know, it's, nobody wanted to spend this money. Uh, unfortunately, we were faced with a crisis, and and we felt like we had to do we had to do something. We had to help those people that found themselves out of a job. We had to help those small businesses uh, that were going to lose their employees and so forth. And that's why we extended the unemployment insurance. That's why we why we uh, created the individual payment that went to, to people. Uh, we had to put money into the PPP program and the PPE program and all of those different uh, programs. Uh, and uh, I think they've helped us through the, through the worst of this. Uh, 
unemployment had reached, I think it was around 14% uh, or so. It's now down to 8.4%. The economy is coming back. But the only way you're going to balance the budget in the long run and deal with uh, the deficit and the debt is to get the economy drawn again. If you look back at the late 1990s, when the last time the, the uh, budget deficit was zero, uh, it wasn't because uh, Republicans in Congress and the Clinton administration slashed the heck out of spending or raised taxes. It was because the economy was booming. That was called the dot-com bubble. And uh, they had more revenue coming in than they knew what to do with. So we've got to, yes, control spending in our regular appropriation process, but we've got to get the economy growing. So you feel that this stimulus uh, package, however it comes out, will will do that, um, but we're still going to be left with a massive amount of, you know, huge deficit, three times yep. the deficit from the prior year, plus a debt that ex potentially could exceed the amount that the economy produces. Yeah. And I mean, that's problematic, uh, no doubt about it. I don't disagree with that at all. And we've got to, you know, uh, while I haven't solved all the problems of the federal government and debt, debt and deficit is one of those, I've been working on that uh, with other groups. So, we, you know, I've, Steny Hoyer, the, the uh, majority leader, Democratic majority leader, and I have been working uh, several years ago on the Go Big Coalition, which was trying to put together a package that would reduce the debt over a period of time. Uh, and it included a whole lot of things, some of them not very popular, but that's what it's going to take. The only way, the, the problem with the debt, one of the biggest problems is that what's driving it so much, besides the stimulus spending, which as I said, I think was necessary, beyond that, it's the entitlement programs that continue to grow faster than uh, what we spend in terms of uh, discretionary spending. Discretionary spending is about 30% of the overall uh, budget mandatory spending is about 70%. And it's growing faster than we can control the rest of the spending. Congressman, this, uh, if you're elected, will be your 12th term. Um, could you name a specific piece of legislation that would be your priority to both sponsor and see passed during your next term? Well, I'm working on a number of bills. One is the immigration, ag immigration reform bill. Uh, we need to create a, uh, a legal workforce for, for uh, agriculture in this country. We passed one in the House last December. It was bipartisan. We had four Democrats, four Republicans working on it. Took us about eight months to get it done. Both sides gave a lot. Uh, we had over 300 organizations that supported both agricultural organizations and things like the Chamber of Commerce and other groups. We thought we were going to get it through the Senate. I know that there was great support for it, uh, or interest at least in it, in the Senate. And uh, so we sent it over to the Senate when it passed the House, and then COVID hit. And everything got put on the back burner. And so I'm hopeful, uh, very hopeful, that we'll be able to take this same bill up in uh, January uh, and move it through the House and Senate, because that would be probably the biggest thing we could do for agriculture, and agriculture in Idaho and across the country. Is get a is create the legal workforce that's necessary. You mentioned January. I don't know if that means uh, before the next president is seated or not. But there is a chance that in not only will the Democrats keep control of the House, but that there would be a president who is from that party, or potentially the Senate could move. Um, how confident are you that you will be able to get your initiatives through 
if that scenario plays out? Well, you know, I've worked in bipartisan fashion for, for year ever since I've been in Congress. If you look at most of the bills that I've supported and the ones that have become law, whether it's the Great American Outdoors Act, uh, I was the lead Republican sponsor in the House. In fact, it was based on, even though it was written in the Senate, it was based on the bill I introduced three years ago called the Lands Act. Uh, that was bipartisan. Uh, whether it was uh, the Ag Immigration Reform Bill, uh, whether it was the, uh, the uh, wildfire funding bill so that we treat wildfires like we treat other natural disasters, those were all bipartisan. Uh, you can work across the aisle. For some reason, it seems like the partisanship comes from the leadership on both the House uh, and Senate side on both parties. Uh, and that's unfortunate. And then when that happens in an election year, a presidential election year, partisanship gets even worse. Uh, I hope that we get back to civility and talking to one another and trying to solve our problems uh, as a country. And I think we can do that. And I can still work with uh, Democrats. Uh, one of the most uh, nonpartisan committees in Congress is the Appropriations Committee. And we work together, Republicans and Democrats, on that committee. If you are elected, um, could you name a specific piece of legislation that w it would be your priority to both sponsor and to see get passed? Well, I, I would sponsor a raise in the minimum wage, but I would also insist that that be tied to uh, income tax reform, it, particularly individual income tax reform. Really, those two things need to go together Typically in Washington, what you see is an increase in the minimum wage, which is a standalone bill by itself. Really, those two things, if they're, they're to work uh, properly economically, need to be tied together. How realistic, I mean, the raising the minimum wage has been tried over and over again. How, how realistic a pro um, do you think that is, that proposal? I think in the coming Congress, it's, it's very realistic. The key here is getting that minimum wage up to a point where somebody working 40 hours a week can meet their basic necess necessities. And I consider these to be seven basic necessities, food, shelter, modest clothing, modest transportation so that person can get to work, health care, obviously, any taxes that they would owe, and then retirement savings so that they're not reliant on the federal government during retirement. Um, putting all those things together for somebody that works 40 hours a week is going to cost about $15 an hour. Our economy can easily afford that, but getting that transition in place is going to take a couple things. That minimum wage increase needs to be done over a number of years, and it needs to be paired with tax reform so that small businesses have an easier time as the, the economy transitions. Currently, every other member of Idaho's congressional delegation is Republican, and so are all the state's constitutional officers. If you're the only Democratic member of our state's delegation, are you confident in your ability to be able to work with the state's Republican leaders to advance uh, Idaho's interests in your agenda in D.C.? Absolutely. And there's a couple points that need to be made here. First of all, the House of Representatives, the Congress, is going to be in Democratic hands. We're not sure about the Senate, but the House is. So if Idaho wants a seat at the table, they should probably have at least one Democratic representative there. Um, that person can help make sure that, that Mountain West issues are at the table as legislation gets introduced and make sure that our voices are heard as legislation is prioritized. The second thing I would point out is that 
there's so much partisanship in Washington that I really don't understand. It doesn't matter to me if you're a Democrat or a Republican. What matters to me is if you're just or unjust, if you're rational or irrational. Are the policies that you're bringing forward, do they make sense or are they just trash, so to speak of? So I really don't look at somebody and label them by their, their party affiliation. I look at the quality of their thought, their critical thinking, and the ideas that they propose. You don't have any experience uh, as an elected official. Um, do you think that that would hinder you when you, uh, if you were to go to Congress? It, it may be an asset. Um, you know, we've got folks in Washington, and if I may say so, I view Mike Simpson in this light, who went with a certain set of principles and now have, you know, what you might call DC fever. And I really feel that he has given up on the principles that he's had for 20 years in Washington simply to win another election. He is supporting a president um, who is just tearing our country apart. Um, and, and for what? So he can have two more years in Congress? I, I almost think that it's better at this point to not have a lot of experience in Washington, but go to Washington with ideas, work with folks who know how things work there and, and get more done. Thank you. Um, I wanna move on to healthcare. Uh, do you believe the Affordable Care Act should be repealed? And if so, what should replace it if that happens? I don't think the Affordable Care Act should be repealed. You know, the Supreme Court is gonna take this case up right after the election. Here in Idaho, we had 61% of the voters approve Medicaid expansion. That was part of the Affordable Care Act. 90,000 Idahoans now have health care that didn't have health care before thanks to the Affordable Care Act. The Republicans are gonna take that away from you. So when you go to the polls and vote, you may very well be voting on whether or not you have health care or Mike Simpson has health care. Mike Simpson has health care. It's great health care. It's paid for by the taxpayers. He is trying to repeal the Affordable Care, Affordable care Act and take health care away from 90,000 Idahoans who are also getting health care paid for by the taxpayers. It's just not right. I would like to see us expand on the Affordable Care Act and do something better and stronger than that, but I don't think you repeal that and take people's health care away. It's just a step in the wrong direction. And Representative Simpson has said that he uh, supports keeping the um, uh, Medicaid expansion in Idaho, even if ACA is overturned. So um, what, what's your response to that? Where's his plan? If you Don't take my word for it. Go out to Congressman Simpson's website he talks a lot about repealing the Affordable Care Act, but where on his website is the Republican plan that's going to protect pre-existing conditions, protect folks who are covered through Medicare expansion, allow people to have their kids on their insurance until they're 26. There are parts of the Affordable Care Act that all Americans from both sides of the aisle love. If there's a Republican plan to protect these things, where is it? Show us the plan. Do you believe the Affordable Care Act should be repealed? And if so, what should replace it? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I think the Republicans have made a mistake saying uh, that we're gonna repeal it and not put out what they're gonna replace it with. And I have to say, I think repeal is probably an overstatement right now because there are many parts of the Affordable Care Act that Republicans and Democrats support. 
none of us want to repeal the part on uh, on uh, pre-existing conditions. We don't want to repeal the part that uh, that you can't have no that there's non-discrimination against women. Uh, we don't want to repeal the part that uh, allows individuals to stay on their uh, their parents' insurance until they're 26. So there are parts of the of the Affordable Care Act that uh, that uh, Republicans support and. If it is a repeal and replace with something else, those will all be part of it. The problem is that the Affordable Care Act is going to collapse on its own. Uh, the prices are going up and competition is going down. And the only way you're going to keep medical costs from going up is create competition out in the marketplace. And I just, you know, we use the 50 states as the laboratories of democracy. You look what's happening in Idaho and what the Department of Insurance and the state legislature and the governor are doing with their with their uh, insurance plans that got approved. Uh, I, I think that's the way to go. And then you let the states try the different things and some work, some don't. Uh, but that's that's how it should work. And we can create a better healthcare system than one that is, I think, absolutely going to collapse of its own weight. Just a follow up. Two years ago, more than 60% of the Idaho electorate uh, approved the expansion of Medicaid, which is an option yep. under the ACA. Um, so since Idaho voters specifically approved that change, do you think the expansion should still stand even if the ACA uh, is repealed? Yeah, I think that the expansion was a good idea and I supported it and encouraged uh, the legislators that I know to vote for it because I think it was the right thing to do. That money was either going to be spent on uh, for health care in Idaho or somewhere else. Uh, and I thought that uh, expanding the, the uh, Medicare expansion, uh, Medicaid ex uh, extension was the right thing to do. Of course, there is a federal match with that that might go away uh, if that That's happens. Right. So would you uh, work to keep that federal match? Sure. I don't think that uh, that we should. You, you can't take away a benefit that you've given. I mean, it's just almost impossible to do, uh, whether it's the right thing to do or not. You probably can't do it. So if the federal government has made that commitment, it needs to keep that commitment to the states, and it shouldn't just be left to the states to fund it all. Of course, some people view ACA now as a benefit. More than 20 million people are on the ACA in some manner. Um, so they might view that as a benefit that gets taken away as, as well. Well, you know, and that's an interesting question. Uh, I just heard today that there are like 8 million people that have insurance because of the Affordable Care Act. What they're not counting is the 15 million people that have lost insurance that had it before and now what they qualified them as, as self-insured. But they lost insurance that they had before. And if you remember, during the campaign uh, for the ACA, President Obama and Vice President Biden were out saying, uh, if you like your doctor, you can keep them. If you like your medical care, you, if you like your, your health insurance, you can keep it. And it's gonna save $2,500 for the average family. That just wasn't true. In fact, they were told uh, by their advisors that that wasn't true, but they kept repeating it. Uh, we find out now that that's not true. Moving on to another subject, the federal government's record of decision for the operation of the Columbia River system is out. Um, what's, what's your opinion on that, ROD? Well, it's interesting. I don't know that it's gonna save salmon. Uh, what I'm interested in is making sure that Idaho salmon uh, runs are uh, sustainable and healthy. Uh, and we get them off the endangered list. Uh, and all of the Idaho salmon runs are, are on the endangered list right now. We've been working for the last uh, year and a half, I guess, 
on, uh, on options of what you can do. And there are a lot of different things that are causing the decline. One of them is hydropower. Everybody seems to concentrate on the dams. That is one issue. Uh, predators are another issue. Uh, the, the harvest is another issue. Habitat is another issue. Now in Idaho, we have some pristine habitat. The problem is salmon can't get to it. So uh, we're working now on, on legislation trying to address that. Uh, I don't think that the, uh, the uh, preferred alternative, the record of decision that came out, uh, is going to save salmon, unfortunately. Why is that? Why do you say that? Well, all it, all it deals with is is uh, increasing the spills. Doesn't deal with the other issues that I just talked about, and and those are uh, every bit as important as uh, as uh, just increasing spills. Have you changed your mind at all on the uh, four Lower Snake River dams and whether they should stay or not? Well, they're a part of the they're a part of the equation for sure. Uh, I don't know that you're going to be able to save salmon uh, if into the sustainable. Uh, levels if those dams remain or not, but even if you took the dams out and didn't address those other issues, it probably you, you're still probably not going to be able to save salmon. So you have to look at it as a complete package of, of what you're going to be able to do. And if you are going, if you're going to take dams dams out, that raises a whole lot of questions about transportation down the Columbia River. How do you get grain down to the to Portland? Uh, how do you replace the 3,000 megawatts of power that those dams produce, uh, and so forth and so on? How do you do it in a clean manner and stuff? So that that raises a lot of questions too, and those questions have to be answered before you can actually put together a package that addresses all of these issues. But I don't hear you ruling it out. I'm not ruling it out. No, I'm not. I, I don't think you rule out anything. I think you got to consider everything if you're serious about saving salmon. Moving on to a natural resource issue, the federal government's record of decision for the operation of the Columbia River system is out. Uh, what is your sense, your opinion of that ROD? Especially as it well, relates, to, especially as it relates to salmon recovery. Excuse me. Yeah, if if I'm thinking about you know the the report that you are referencing, you know they came out against dam removal. And I think that we still have to have dam removal on the table. In fact, I really think it's the only way to save salmon and steelhead. Um, there are some things that need to be mitigated. You can't just rip those dams out and call it good. Uh, you need to think about grain growers and wine producers, particularly in eastern Washington. But I think we should have the capacity um, to make sure that those people are kept whole. Um, while also removing the dams and saving fish that are vital to industries here in Idaho, particularly like the, like the guiding industry. If you were elected, how would you thread that needle? It's a huge issue. It's been going on for decades, and there are a lot of constituents in Idaho who care about uh, salmon recovery. Where, where would you start? What would you do? You know, I've, I've talked over and over about having a, a good, strong, fair economy, and really that's the base and the foundation of so much that needs done. When that is in place, you have a tax base um, that would provide funding for things like making grain growers and wine producers whole um, as we remove dams. Uh, unfortunately, that economy is not in place, and so it's hard to find the money um, particularly when we're running a massive budget deficit to do things like this. And so, you know, our economy, so many of the social issues and environmental issues that we face are like a spider web. You can't just fix one issue at a time. You have to have a foundation in place for fixing all the issues. 
we don't have that foundation in place. And so individual issues like this become very difficult to solve. Um, I would put that foundation in place that would allow us to, to address all of those issues. So you're essentially saying that if the economic system were revamped, if more money was coming in through ta various forms of taxation, then some of the hyper intensity of these issues would just go away because there'd be enough money to throw at them to fix them? Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Well, there's a couple issues there. First of all, anytime you have the extreme income inequality that we have in our country, you have much more social division. We've seen that through history. So as soon as you create a more fair and equitable economy, you kind of take the boilerplate out from underneath all of these social and environmental issues. That's number one. So you, so you allow people to come to the table and talk in a more constructive way than they're doing now. But second, yes, if you balance your budget and you have uh, the revenue coming in to make investments to make your society better, this is one of those areas where it really, in the grand scheme of things, wouldn't take a lot of money to fix this issue. What do you think about tariffs? President Trump has imposed new tariffs on a variety of different products from China, which significantly affect the prices of those goods, as well as the amount of imports and exports coming back and forth between the two countries. I do think there is a place for tariffs. Um, you know, other countries have advantages like low wage rates, poor environmental laws, poor worker rights, things of that sort that need to be taken into account as we trade with those nations. And a great way to offset some of those advantages is through a tariff. Now, you can certainly overdo it with tariffs. 40, 50, 60%, it, it's just too much. But we could and should have tariffs with every nation that is not like ours, whose economy is not like ours, based upon those differences that go that range from 4% up to 12 or 15% to offset those differences between our lifestyle, our living standard, our wage rates, and their wage rates and their living standard. So, you know, and, and I think you, sorry, I, I, I think you have to have an idea of what that system looks like and then make sure that all goods coming from that country are that so, the, the tariff so you, is applied to those. Do you support the current tariffs that are on China? You know, the president has put some tariffs in place on things like steel that I think are maybe 20 or 25 percent. I feel like those are a little onerous. I think, you know, doing unilateral things like that uh, tend to start a trade war. I would rather see the president lay out a plan for what he thinks the tariffs, you know, with each nation, in this instance, China, should be, put those in place, explain why those tariffs are what they are, um, and have those be tariffs that are across the board. Don't single out a single product or single service and, and just put a, an extreme tariff on that thing. You know, let's, let's have a reasonable tariff and let's have it on all goods from that country. I want to ask you about tariffs. President Trump has imposed new tariffs on a variety of products from China, which has the effect of both uh, significantly affecting the prices of those goods, as well as the amount of import and export traffic between the two countries. What, what is your opinion on those tariffs and how they have or have not affected Idaho? 
I, I'm not a fan of tariffs. Uh, I understand that sometimes when practices are unfair that you, you do that as kind of a punishment, but who it punishes is the consumers that buy those goods in the United States uh, at a higher price. So actually, Idaho consumers pay those uh, those tariffs that are that are put on uh, the Chinese. While it does make those goods, uh, or, or goods of the United produced in the United States, more competitive with those Chinese goods, the reality is is it's consumers that pay those tariffs. So I've never been a fan of tariffs. I understand that occasionally they're necessary. You know, back to the atmosphere in this country right now, which is quite heated, and in some some people are uh, quite nervous about it. Do you condemn white supremacy and white nationalism, Congressman? Absolutely, absolutely. We don't need that in this country. We don't need uh, we don't need uh, extremism on either side. And believe me, it's there on both sides, and uh, it's not just white nationalism. You look at a lot of the Black Lives Matter people that are out burning down our cities and stuff, that's a problem also. So we shouldn't just condemn one side. Both sides need to take, uh, take responsibility for their own actions and we should, should condemn uh, those activities on both sides. Some have said that the president himself is emboldening this type of rhetoric and, and behavior. What, is your, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think he is. Uh, he's, you know, he's offered to, to send, uh, send uh, federal troops into these cities to help them get control uh, of these cities, whether it's Portland or Seattle or Chicago or New York. And uh, the mayors of those cities have said no. Uh, but I, I, and I think that's a mistake on their part. Uh, I think what emboldens these people is when they get arrested and then you have the potential vice president of the United States uh, Kamala Harris and her, uh, some of her uh, campaign staff putting and encouraging other people to put funds into uh, a fund to bail these people out that have been out burning down our cities and stuff. That's what encourages these people. You have to stand up to these people. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a little confused. You're saying that the white supremacists are themselves reacting to uh, something else? No. Not that... No. I was I was talking about the people that are out burning our cities down right now. But uh, I, I asked you about mm -hmm. white supremacy. Uh, I condemn it just like any other extreme uh, measure that divides us. And you don't think that the president of the United States in any way is helping embolden it? No, he said he's against white supremacy and he's opposed to it. Talk about hyperpartisan issues. Uh, right now, we're in a very heated um, societal condition. Do you condemn white supremacy and white nationalism? I do. I do condemn white supremacy and white nationalism. Um, yes, I, I, I just don't think there's a place for that in our society. What is your sense of the best way to combat those beliefs or um, quell the tensions that are going on right now? Yes, yeah, certainly. I've already addressed, you know, what I think having a fair and more equitable economy would do. So there is that aspect of it. I also think that we need a fair and equitable justice system. Ideally, you would have people in our society who are personally responsible for their actions. And if they're not personally responsible, we would have a justice system in place that holds them personally accountable. And that justice system would be fair and equitable. I don't think we've ever really had that. And so there's not a level of respect out there for authority 
um, and and you know cops, things of that sort, who represent the authority in our society. We also have to find a way where we keep our freedom of speech, but we also make it obvious that some some groups are lying to people about um, you know the situation and the reality that we have in our society, uh, and that's 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 a tough. It's a tough thing to balance, and I'm not sure I have all the answers to that. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I do have another question I wanted to ask you. Do you see any cause for unusual concern over how the upcoming election uh, will be handled as well as its results? I, like most Americans, would love to have faith in our election system. It is key to the type of society that our forefathers established. It's a shame that we have members of our government who have helped to work to erode faith in that election system. I don't think that we are going to have major problems. Will there be some um, anecdotal evidence of a problem here, a problem there? Yes, I, our voting system is not perfect. But in terms of large scale problems, I don't foresee anything and, and I don't think we'll have that. Do you have any uh... Do you see any cause for unusual concern about the upcoming elections, either how they're carried out or the results of them? One of my greatest fears right now is that the American public is not going to accept the outcome of this election, no matter how it turns out, uh, unless it's an overwhelming one side or the other, and I don't think that'll be the case. Uh, when you look at uh, mail-in ballots, and I want to distinguish that from absentee balloting, Balloting. We've been doing that for years. That's where you request a ballot, they send it to you, you fill it out, they send, and you send it back. But mail-in uh, ballots are, they send out ballots to everybody that is on their voter registration. And if you have not uh, purged your voter list, you've got people on there that have died. You've got people that uh, have uh, moved out of the county uh, or their, their district and so forth. A judge in uh, Los Angeles made them remove one and a half million people from their voter list because they hadn't purged their names for, for so long. I have a staff member who lives in uh, Virginia who's already received two ballots. I just, you know, people are gonna be a little leery of this election with, uh, with the calls to go to an all mail-in uh, election. Now you look at Oregon uh, that's been doing mail-in for some time. I think it was their secretary of state said, it took us about five years to get it right. Uh, but we're gonna do this across the country if you think that hanging chads in the Florida election and the 2000 election were a problem, I think this is going to take a long, long time to decide who the, who the winner of this election is, and unless, like I said, it's overwhelming one way or another. You said you had some fears about that. Um, yeah. What are you thinking, and how will you, as a sitting congressman, address those fears if they do come up? I'm going to I'm going to take the the results of the election, and I'm uh, you know I trust the American people. I'm going to I'm going to assume that uh, everything went uh, fairly and correctly, uh, and I'm going to accept the outcome uh, of the election. And I hope all Republicans do, and I hope all Democrats do. I hope the American people do. It's not just that politicians are divided uh, in this country; it's that the American public is divided also. I am concerned when I see the activities that are going on around this country right now of whether they're going to be willing to accept the outcome if they think it wasn't fair uh, or if they think that there was cheating or fraud or other things that uh, were going on. So that, uh, that's going to, I think this is going to be a challenge for American democracy this year. Well, thank you. We're at the point where you can give your closing comments, so you have 60 seconds for that. 
Well, thank you. And thanks, uh, Idaho Public Television and the League of Women Voters for hosting these debates. While I've been in Congress for a while, it is true that I have not solved every problem the federal government has. Uh, that doesn't mean I haven't been working on those, but I have some solid accomplishments that I'm very proud of. Whether it's the Great American Outdoors Act, that was a bipartisan act uh, that I think is the greatest uh, environmental piece of legislation that's passed since the Wilderness Act. Whether it's the how we fund wildfires, which is a very important for the Western United States, uh, so that we treat them like other natural disasters. Whether it's the Boulder White Clouds Wilderness Bill that took 15 years to get done. Immigration is obviously important and something that I'm working on. Uh, whether it's the funding that I've received uh, for the Idaho National Laboratory and growing, growing the Idaho National Lab into the lead nuclear lab in the country and one of the outstanding laboratories of our 17 things, of our 17 laboratories. These are things that I am very proud of and I hope the American people are proud of and the people of Idaho are proud of and I would ask for your vote on November 3rd. Thank you so much. Well, it is time for closing comments and you have one minute for your closing comment. Thank you. You know, in 1980, a lot of Americans felt that our country was headed in the wrong direction. And people who had voted Democrat all their lives crossed the aisle and supported a Republican for president. Those, Demo those Reagan Democrats knew that our country was more important than any political party. We're in a different situation now, but our nation is still in trouble. We have a president who is authoritarian, who is dividing our citizenry for his own benefits. He doesn't feel like the laws of our nation apply to him. Unfortunately, he is being enabled and supported by congressmen like Mike Simpson. So I'm asking all of my fellow Idahoans, particularly those who see themselves as Republican, send a message to Washington that you don't approve of the direction our country is going in and you don't approve of the direction your party is going in. I'm Aaron Swisher and I am asking for your vote. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's all the time we have. You've been listening to a question and answer session with the candidates for the second congressional district in Idaho. Even though this wasn't a traditional debate, I hope you feel more informed about your choices and I encourage you to vote on November 3rd. For the Idaho Debates, I'm Marcia Franklin. The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.